What is good, everybody? Welcome to the podcast. I'm actually so happy to be back with y'all. Um, I've been doing some really good study in the Gospel of John, and I think we might hop into the Gospel of John after Ephesians because, oh my goodness, uh, I've been reading a, a book regarding the Gospel of John, and it's probably one of the most in-depth and just knowledge-breaking barriers for me. Uh, it's actually, it's so much fun and so cool, but I hope that y'all have had a great week, great day. I'm so excited to get into the second chapter of Ephesians. At this rate, it's going to be a very long time until we get into another series because we're getting through two verses today. We're getting through verses four and six, but like always, you know, the, God's word is so full of so many things that it's very important that we break it down and make sure we understand it, at least to the fullness of our capacity at the moment, um, and, and always just try our best to give God's word the respect and the due diligence that it deserves. But we have been tracking with Paul's very long and ongoing line of thought about the cause and effect that all starts with wisdom and knowledge of God. He gives this very long and impactful prayer that he's been praying over the recipients of this letter. And the start of chapter two is a continuation of this. In Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23, is, is that believers would be filled with wisdom and the knowledge of God so that they may know the hope that they have in Christ. And, and this hope leads to knowledge of our great inheritance and an inheritance that comes from the almighty God who came in the flesh to be put above all power and all names. And this whole thought, this whole line of reasoning that Paul gives, it leads into chapter two, where Paul fills us in on the life that logically follows from a person who has no knowledge of God. For someone who does not put their hope in Christ or worship him as almighty above all names. And this means that those people who reject Christ, they live a life of death. A life of death that is full of sin and transgression. They, they give in to all their passions and desires and they live according to a flawed moral code. These people are naturally enemies of God. And Paul lets us know in no uncertain terms that before Christ, we were these people. So this is the scene that we're walking into, this, this stark reality that our lives apart from Christ becomes one that is of unavoidable destruction. So, so with this in mind, let's read what God's response is to this problem that we all face. Paul lays out this problem that humanity faces without Christ in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. But let's, let's read what Paul sees as God's response to this problem that we all face. We're going to be reading through verses 4 through 6 today in Ephesians chapter 2. And it says this, but God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so let's break this down verse by verse. Once again, in verse four, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, verse four is starting off right after Paul fills us in that, hey, before Christ, you you were living a life of death. You became, you know, children of this world, uh, enemies of God. You were in such a state that was so egregious and terrible. And verse four is speaking straight into that situation. And Paul says, but God being rich in mercy. Now, the second I hear the phrase, but God, my mind immediately goes to uh, all the sermons that I hear pastors preach nowadays where they'll talk about a bad situation you're in and then they'll say, but God, and the crowd will go wild like, yes, you know, no matter what you're going through, there's always a but God in the situation. So that just kind of makes me laugh a little bit. But what I want to focus on, at least to begin with, is this idea that that God is rich in mercy. Because Paul says, hey, you know, God being rich in mercy. And, and this is interesting. So the Greek word for rich, it also implies not just um, material goods in that sense, um, or even like a monetary type of stamp that you can put on somebody. It, it implies a wealth or an abundance. I think abundance is a better way to understand it here. So God being abundant in mercy. And, and Paul is telling us that God has this vast surplus of this commodity called mercy. This thing called mercy. God has an abundance, an overwhelming abundance of mercy. And what's interesting is that God does not have this vast wealth of mercy because he's saving it or keeping it to himself. It's not like God has this mercy because he's withholding it from people. Rather, God has this mercy simply because he's able to provide in abundance of mercy, far faster and greater than he can hand it out. This is like a never-ending supply chain of mercy. And how do we know this? Well, Paul tells us that God has this mercy and he gave us this mercy because of the great love he has for us. Now, who is us here? Well, in the most immediate sense, it, it's Paul's original audience because Paul's writing this letter to them. But Paul qualifies what the phrase us means in the next few verses. Paul let us, lets us know that the us were those who were dead in our trespasses and who were made alive together with Christ. So with that in mind, any and everyone who is made alive in Christ, i.e. all of those who follow Jesus, those are the ones who have been given this undeserved mercy. 
and maybe the next question we could ask if you know we're if we're trying to really think through this with Paul is why on earth do we need this mercy because as Paul just told us a few verses before we all lived in transgression and sin and the only way that those sins can be forgiven is through an act of mercy if we are not going to pay for our wrongdoings on our own accord, then those wrongdoings have to be forgiven another way. If I owe you $10 because I borrowed $10, I promised I would give it back, but now I refuse to give back that money, the only way that the, the debt that I owe you can be forgiven is if you decide to be merciful and simply wipe away the debt even though I technically still owe you. But you make things right. I, I can't make them right. Either I can't make them right because I choose not to or I can't make them right because I, no matter how bad I want to, I just can't. Either way, you are the one that hands out the mercy that forgives me of my debt. So God is the one who is handing out mercy as an act of forgiveness. But it's important. This is important to not misunderstand mercy as being a lack of judgment or an alternative to judgment. That's really important. Now, let me explain. Let me explain. We often view judgment as always being a harsh punishment and mercy as always overlooking any wrongdoing and acting like it never happened. However, the cross in its purest sense was an act of judgment and mercy tied into one. And, and how does this work? Well, we understand the mercy aspect as sins being forgiven and believers obtaining new life. That's great. That's fine. That's dandy. But the judgment aspect is right there with it. Because the only people to receive mercy are those who acknowledge their sin and rightfully confess their shortcomings by accepting and following Jesus. That in and of itself is an act of judgment. Let me explain it another way. The only reason why any active sinner who is following their own passions, doing their own thing, doing all that they can to better their feelings, their wealth, their social status, their desires, who are, who are using and abusing other people to simply get what they want. The only reason why any of them, any of us, all of us, any reason why we would ever Turn to Jesus is if and when we truly come to understand how utterly wrong and evil our actions are and that we are in need of something far greater than ourselves to turn this ship around. And that is when we look to Jesus. The very act of looking to Jesus means that we acknowledge that what we have done is wrong. We have made a judgment about ourselves that the way that we have been living is not 
moral. It's wrong. And we make that judgment on ourselves. And when we choose to follow Christ, we act upon the judgment of our of our dead life that is in sin and transgressions. And we say, that is not acceptable. I am judging this as being wrong. I'm judging myself as guilty and I need a savior. And you cannot receive this mercy unless you die to yourselves in order to live for Christ. Because the mercy is only available for those who choose to follow Christ. Like, like, let's reread this here in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had for us. And we, we pointed out that the us, the mercy that God has for us, the us is those who were made alive together with Christ. So if you are not in Christ, you are not receiving the mercy. Now, this does not mean that the mercy is still not available for you to take. You have to first be alive with Christ in order for you to receive this mercy. Everyone can have this mercy, but not everyone receives it. Mercy is only available for those who follow Christ. And in order to do so, you must judge your sinful ways as impermissible and therefore die to them. The act of mercy on the cross is equally an act of judgment. All right, on to verse 5 and 6. Paul says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so we pointed out earlier that who this mercy is for. It is for those who were dead in their trespasses and then made alive with Christ. And it was clear. That this mercy is for those who are in Christ. But notice the timeline of when this mercy takes place. It, it didn't take place when one was no longer a sinner. It takes place while one is dead in their trespasses and sin. And what does this imply? Well, this implies a few things. The first being that without Christ, you are spiritually dead. And I don't use spiritually dead to mean that in a lesser sense. You, you are dead, but physically you are alive. So spiritually you're dead, but physically you are alive. Because for the biblical narrative, spiritual death is the far more significant and eternal state of affairs. But this is important to note. Because what is the way that one can be made alive and be taken from the state of death. Well, as Paul seems to just tell us, it's through Christ. It's only through Christ. So, God's mercy in the ultimate sense is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is mercy. And it is His coming as a sacrifice for our sins. But this also implies that God's mercy is not a one-time deal. And what do I mean by that? It if the way to be taken from your state of spiritual death is, the, is by the mercy of Jesus, then it follows that the way you continue in new life is through the continual mercy 
of Jesus. And, and how can I say this? Because some of you may disagree, and that's fine, but, but why do I say this? Well, Paul makes it clear that Christ's sacrifice isn't just a pit stop that we are meant to eventually cease to need. Paul tells us that the way out of our life of death is through being made alive together with Christ and raised up with him in the heavenly places. And Paul makes it clear that Jesus still actively lives. How else could we be made alive with him and be seated with him if Jesus is still not actively living? So this mercy that God gives to those who live in death is one that requires a continual pursuit of living together with Christ. Now, some may view this as an unfortunate servitude. Oh, especially in our culture today, telling anyone that their purpose is to be a servant. A servant to someone that calls them to put aside their own desires. That's like that's like the most egregious thing you could ask of anybody in this culture. Could you imagine the type of response you would get? And so some may view this as an unfortunate servitude, like, oh, I don't want to serve anyone. I don't want to give up my own passions and desires and goals and all of this for somebody else. And so they would view this as a, a very bad thing. But, you know, honestly, the, the only way that someone can come to that conclusion is if they are just so ignorantly unaware of their own sinful, death-filled life that is in desperate need of a Savior. I've used this C.S. Lewis quote multiple times on the podcast, but it's still one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says this, quote, Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed, end quote. And he carries on that same sentiment a few pages later, and he explains that because of this lack of either awareness or acceptance of how bad human beings just are, you know, in general— when we don't realize how bad we are, it then follows that we always view God and his actions throughout scripture as God being this evil, angry dad that just wants to beat and abuse his kids. And the only way we can ever come to a conclusion that heretical is when we downplay or completely are blind to how bad human beings can be when we don't take it for granted when we don't assume a priori that human beings are bad it follows then that we're going to just think that god is some angry evil monster that just wants to punish people and be abusive but if we actually understand how bad and evil we are, how misconstrued so many of our desires and, uh, and feelings and emotions and all of these things are, if we actually understood that, then we would look at the actions that, God's, that God takes throughout the Bible as a fair judgment, a fair and just punishment. 
And then we would even be able to see in the moments where God relents from judgment, we would see how unbelievably merciful and patient God is. If we actually understood the magnitude of our sin and how evil we are. But like C.S. Lewis says, Christ takes it for granted that we're bad. And because we don't understand this assumption of his to be true, we're not a part of the audience to whom the words of Jesus are addressed. And that's really, really unfortunate for us. And what C.S. Lewis is saying ties perfectly into this notion that being alive with Christ is an ongoing act of service to Christ. Because we will always view the laying down of our own desires for the desires of God as something that is bad unless we truly understand that we are inherently sinners in need of a Savior. Until we understand that our desires are going to be inherently misguided and that the desires of God for us are far greater, far, far greater. I mean, look at what Paul says again. Let's look at this again. He says that God made us alive together with Christ and that it is by grace that you have been saved. It is an act of pure, undeserved grace that we have the opportunity to be alive with Christ, which means we have the opportunity and the undeserved grace to actively live to serve Christ and to die to ourselves. Do we not remember what Paul just pointed out in this chapter? We, we naturally find ourselves being dead, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, and we become children of wrath and followers of the world going against God in all ways possible. Paul just told us that in the first three verses. And we can convince ourselves that we are living, that we're alive, that, you know, since we're following our own passions and desires, that, you know, we're really living the good life. But ultimately, when that happens, we're dead. And it is a pure act of mercy and grace that we have a chance, an opportunity to die to our life of death and to serve on bended knee the God who gives us a path to life. Being alive with Christ should be seen as more than just a status change for believers. It should be seen as a call to live like Christ and to live for Christ. And that requires us to constantly choose to die to our old life of death and live together with the God who gave us freedom. But we only know to do this. We all like all of this that we just went through today. We only know how important this is. And we only know to do this if we have the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This all goes back to Paul's prayer in chapter one. That started with him praying that the believers would come to have a wisdom and a knowledge of God. And if they have that wisdom and knowledge of God, that's awesome because they understand the hope they're supposed to have. They understand the inheritance that they're going to receive as God's children. They understand how almighty and powerful God is. They understand that Christ is seated above all 
names, but if they don't understand that, then they will be continuing to live in the world, continuing to live in a life of death because of their sins and transgressions, and they will become enemies of God. But if they if they have this knowledge of God, even if they are in that state of death, like Paul said in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, according to his love for us. If we have this knowledge of God, we understand that I don't have to live this way anymore. I don't have to live in this, this life of just perpetual sadness and agony and depression, a life of nihilism with no hope, no purpose, no ultimate goal. You don't have to live that way anymore if you understand and have wisdom according to the knowledge of God, you will see that God has extended his mercy. If only you will choose to serve Christ and be made alive in him. On to verse 7. This one will be short. Paul says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So those who are in Christ Jesus, those who freely choose to follow Christ, to serve him, to die to their old life, their old ways, and to fully submit to Jesus, God will show his immeasurable riches, his grace, and his kindness toward each and every one of us. That is what we should be striving for. And we strive for that when we understand and have the knowledge of God. I'll see you all next week.